Hello and welcome to our podcast on the EU Mercosur trade deal. We are Emma, Reshma and Simon, students at the National University of Ireland in Galway. As part of the International Human Rights Law Clinic, we are working with activist Sergia, a member of Talambeo, looking at the intersection between the EU Mercosur trade deal and human rights. We are examining what impact the EU-Mercosur trade deal will have on the environment and how the agreement will be in contrast to international human rights standards. This is our fourth episode. You are listening to Emma and Sersha interviewing Jerry, an Irish farmer. Now enjoy. Hi Jerry, thanks many for joining us. You are a suckler farmer from the Button Neffin. Thanks again for giving us your time today. Um, so I suppose we're just going to start kind of more generally in if you could briefly explain to people, because I think a lot of people just see agriculture or cows, if you can explain what suckler farming is and in Ireland, like, you know, how many people are involved in suckler farming and just give it, you know, kind of a, a big yeah. picture okay. outline. Yeah, well, first of all, hello, Saoirse, and hello to you, everybody there, uh, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to speak on the sucker interest in this country. I suppose if we go back in time, where we came from, the amount of cows that would be involved in on farms actually was quite small. The main source of protein went back a number of hundred years ago, say 80 years ago, was eggs, because it was all poultry, fowl, etc., uh, and the beef, you know, the beef team wasn't a major player in Ireland at the time. Later down, then, when people, you know, sort of increase cows a little bit to, to graze land, etc., um, it was would be type of Aberdeen Angus and that type of thing. The very, very suitable hardy breeds and then type of traditional breeds that was used in those days to graze the high nature value farmland. And uh, some of these were on hills as well. It was. You know, very much a don't think that cows raise hills going back then. And the idea was that it would be brought home and that it would be handmade before suckling ever was taken off, uh, ever took off in this country. They'd be brought into the cow buyer every evening. They would be handmade whatever number. The number would be quite small. The cats would be fed uh, that way at that time. But then suckling started, I suppose, in the around the 70s, 80s, when... You know, we came up with this plan that we'd let the calf roam with the cow during the day. Uh, and that needed much more of a, a, a type of an effort and a, a higher feeding system because now the calf was was nurturing himself by sucking, by sucking the cow several times during the day, which was more and more pressure on the cow to keep the milk produced. We then uh, developed that to a certain degree and we started breeding continental cattle like Limousine, Shirley, and all that type of stuff. And we got hugely into the market of exporting our heifer cats to Spain, and our heavy of bull wheelings went to Italy. It was prime beef. As regards the meat feeding systems was quite low at the time, it was mostly grass-based. There was little or no chemicals involved, and we put that regime at that time, uh, because of the high, high, quite top quality in the world, weanlings that we were producing and exporting to these countries, it put agriculture on the map in Ireland. And that was hugely successful for, you know, for many years. Prices was good. A sucker farmer could make a profit. 
and back in those days. And, you know, then bit by bit, the dairy idea started to take hold. The production of more milk and the manufacturing of all these different nourishments, etc., and formulas that's now been produced by the dairy sector. And the sector sector, to be quite honest about it, got shut out. It was never developed as, you know, as what it really was. It was virtually naturally rare beef, top quality beef, uh, exported around the world. It was critically important to the, the, the small family farm, especially across the west, the high nature value farmland, the, the moory ground, the hills, the, 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 you know, the population, the people, the community that lived in these areas. It was a huge part of their income. And that's, I suppose, where we're at today. We have gone down the road of, you know, turning the family farm model into a business-led industry model of Irish agriculture here. And more and more, as the dairy sector increases, the debt in that sector becomes larger. There's a huge amount of money borrowed by young people who've gone down the road of, well, I start off with 200 cows, if you want 200 cows, then you want a statin unit, if you want a milk and power, and you want all the other things, and the renting land or the buying the land. And many of these young people have got out for five, six, seven, eight hundred thousand, and they cannot make the repayments. And we're in a critical state. Uh, and that was that took favor, that model took favoritism over our sectors. And there was a scheme developed from back a few years ago called the Beef Genomics, and it was the most fascinating scheme, you know, as regards breeding that that I have ever ever witness because my idea of that would, would be that it was a deliberate attempt to produce poor quality cattle off the sucker hard to try and incentivize farmers to leave suckling uh, and turn over to dairy. And we see what's going on today. You know, the suckler herd is reducing. The dairy herd is unsustainably un, 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 increasing. And our way of life with our sucklers etc like that you know that's one of us running but it's going to cause it is going to cause massive problems in um, hill farming areas and high nature by the farmland because they were an essential land management tool the ones heather on hills or heather on, on boggy ground or whatever goes so high the cows would eat the top of it you know they wouldn't eat it to the floor like the sheep do it was a different model of grazing these lands and that is you know, made a huge contribution, if you like, to land ineligibility on hills, on common, just, you know, because sheep tend to wait in certain parts of the common of the hill. They don't travel at all, they don't graze at all, no cattle there to tell the top. And, you know, it's had led the, it, you know, the, the, the less and less cows and the forgetting more or less about our suckler industry and the way it should have been developed and, and promoted, etc., has caused. You know, many problems I see in rural Ireland today. Jerry, with that, I might actually ask you there because you're raising a point that um, I was curious about. Just that there was more of a push towards dairy farming in Ireland, okay, and going away from the suckler farming. Like, I'm curious to know who or what was the driving factor for that. Was it coming from Irish government or EU that to you know, to kind of influence young farmers to go and increase their dairy herd quite substantially. Where was that influence coming from? 
Well, it, it, that influence came from family organizations who represented, if you like, the more established or the more um, yuppie type farmer, if that's maybe the wrong word to use. Because I remember when I was going to school, the bigger farmer at that time, uh, he'd be, he, even though he was looked at as a bigger farmer, he might be making 15, 20 dairy cows, but that's farmer all the more time. It was always that bit, once you were milking cows, you were always seen as being more upper class than the other fella with the sheep and the lack of suckers. And, you know, as the likes of, you know, Borbia and politicians and farming organizations seen this opportunity of promoting dairy that, you know, step by step, bit by bit, what could be produced of cow's milk and more and more products being produced. It, you know, it took quite a number of years, but um, the EU, of course, had it limited to a quota system until 2015. And when they removed that quota system 15, all hell is broke loose now. But, you know, it was a gradual process. More and more land was sought for this way of farming. You know, suckler farmers were asked to lease their land or spill the land or whatever the case may be in the woodland areas of the east and south. And, and it was the businesses, of course, too, the dairy corporations played their part in this at all because, you know, there was cream, what we called creameries there at one time and co-ops. They all changed now to corporations. They've gone bigger set up altogether. And that all developed over a period of years of a number of times, you know. And it was the way, it was a way that was basically seen for making money for corporations rather than keeping small family farms alive. Uh, and that is why we've ended up today with, you know, a business-led, interesting model of Irish agriculture. And we're heading down the road like the minute, you know, where the, where, where the survival of Irish agriculture will the price on, will, de, will depend on the price of each milk. Because everything else has been totally and utterly neglected. We're a net importer of food. We've grown nothing. You know, uh, we're importing huge amounts of grain, chemically treated, genetically modified, to keep this unsustainable way of Irish agriculture, you know, going. And now, if there's any move to change it or to, you know, let's use a bit of common sense type approach here, well, then you have to tell me, well, look at the banks now. The banks won't let us do that. The banks are all so much money, so we have to keep going. Every sort of an excuse under the rising sun is, you know, that is the road we're on. And unfortunately, the farming organisations like the ICMSA and the IFA have turned a blind eye to the way they are representing the farmers. Because if you look at the likes of Holland, Denmark, China, for example, China now are producing 31% of their milk is plant-based. There is no research being done here how we do it. A, like, why are we not producing a certain amount of our milk from plants? You know, uh, and you would, that would mean that you wouldn't be wiping out the dairy and see all together. Because it's going to come down to that at some stage, because we cannot keep increasing the dairy herd. No place for the dairy case to go. Nobody wants them. The, the fact that less and less beef is going to be consumed, and, and the fact that we're driving our emissions out of all proportion. And it's, not, it's just simply an unsustainable, it's an unsustainable way of, of, of doing business, if you like, what we're at at the minute. But the problem is here that the established farmers who are not in debt are going to keep at this while it lasts. 
The dairy corporations do not care. They don't care. They will make as much money out of this while he can be kept going. And what's going to be left at the end of it is the thing collapsing and farmers left with a massive debt to the banks and massive takeover of land. That is my honest opinion. Um, I was just saying, so just to be clear, um, now I think my figures, well, they were right a few years ago, but there's, and you might correct me, Jerry, you might have more up-to-date figures, but there are about 90,000 suckler farmers compared to only about 15,000 dairy farmers and, you know, a couple of thousand mixed farmers, isn't that right? Yeah, well, you wouldn't be fair off in today on that. There's about 18,000 dairy farmers, there's about 70,000, 75,000 suckers. Yeah. Yeah, so you wouldn't be that far off, no. A figure, a good guideline to go by, I always go by, in 1973, we had 373,000 farmers in this country. And because of all this carry on, the way the whole system is behind, we're now down to 135,000. And like any village you're looking into, including my own, there's a number of small farms abandoned, there's houses abandoned, there's empty houses that were are livable in, and a living was made in them before on these small farms. There is no reason why a living cannot be made on them again, because there's no incentive being really driven yet to, to start to take hold of people producing and growing their own. That is something that has to happen as well. So I just want to ask you, because it's not maybe immediately obvious, but is it not the case that Ireland could have both a thriving dairy and thriving beef sector? Like why, surely the, the dairy industry thriving, thriving doesn't necessarily spell disaster for the sector farms but in Ireland's case it has could you just explain why that is the case like why has one fallen away while the other has I suppose blossomed because it, you know it's, it's not just uh, a few farms being sold off this is a much more widespread like even in areas like Mayo where there's not a lot of big dairy farms suckler farming is in a crisis yeah, well, look at it. Goes back to what I, I suppose, what I previously more or less said. It is the idea of, you know, politically driven, feminization driven, dairy corporation driven. You know, it's, it comes down to one word, to be quite honest about it, and that's greed. And you're right. There is no we could have a viable dairy sector and a viable sector sector. And as things change, and as people become more and more aware of. The quality of food that you know that we're that are consuming. There's a big push now for chemical, you know, for chemical free food. Ireland should be much more down the organic route, but the numbers, as we've seen this year, the numbers that was allowed into an organic scheme is absolutely deplorable. Uh, and if we have fairness, but you see, there is no fairness politically. There is no fairness. We have a farm advisory service in Chavez, which I would call in unfit for purpose. It's continuously, it's mac document continuously, are was all uh, built around the dairy sector. It, it, you know, there was nothing in that document that suggests the sheep sector, nothing else at all. How could the dairy sector get away with keeping going as what is that and sort of holding on to or not increasing emissions and then reducing emissions? All that type of stuff that the government of the day put into, which is unrealistic, unachievable. Uh, and all that type of stuff, and we see much something similar now with food rights, twenty fifty something. You know, where they want to increase exports again, of course, from the dairy sector from about fourteen billion to twenty one billion, and at the same time reduce our emissions by ten percent. And that is a crazy statistic because you know you can't have a loaf of nature; it has to be one or the other. We could have, if what the dairy sector should be doing at this moment, we're trying to make it sustainable, 
there should be more and more organic milk produced, there should be a start-up to plant-based milk, and there should be a huge reduction in the amount of cows. There's no point saying otherwise. And there's no point if we're serious about climate change, but they're not. No way are they serious about climate change, because whether we write off emissions or whether we don't write them off, with the number of cows that, that we have and other countries have, you're producing a huge amount of biogenic methane one up into the atmosphere, which is causing huge damage. And it's like, it's not fine saying, well, I, we're writing it off with trees, or we're writing it off with this, or we're writing it off with that. You know, we shouldn't be producing that amount because of the seriousness of where we're going, of where the planet is at. Is it going to be livable on, or is it going or not? And these are all the excuses that's been put forward by the dairy industry, put forward by taggers, bought into by politicians, and we are going absolutely nowhere. Uh, you know, and it does really annoy me to think that Irish taxpayers are going to pay something in the region between fines for water quality, renewable energy, and mostly emissions, something in the region of 7 billion from 2020 to 2030. And you see, the, the problem here is too that the ordinary person in the street until recently has never took an interest in this. Everybody, every news, every day now we hear something on the news about climate change, but that's only this last year, year and a half. For, we are 25 years behind many countries in the EU as regards what are we doing to combat our emissions. You know, it's 20 years ago since the Paris Accord, and when we set targets that we were going to reduce our emissions by 1 million tonnes below 1995, our 2005 levels. And instead of that, we ended up 2 million tons above. We completely missed our 2020 targets by miles. And that is why I say we are continuously keeping the general, we have kept the general public in the dark for many, many years. Famine organizations do not want to hear the word climate change. They just don't want to hear it. They want to bury it in the sand and continue doing what they're doing. And in that case, it's taxpayers' money. Taxpayers' money that goes into the beam scheme and all these other schemes to prop up uh, the beef industry. Taxpayers' money that's going to pay all the fines we have to pay to deal. But the taxpayers are not aware of this. And I think it's time they were made aware. It's time those campaigns launched to make the ordinary people that's getting up at 6.30 in the morning to go to work where a lot of their money is going now. You know, I, I, and I, I feel very strongly on that, that it's going to take a national campaign to change the system of Irish agriculture. Yeah, well, this that brings us uh, rightly on to the EU-Mercosur trade deal that's kind of been discussed for the last 20 years. And unlike CETA, which I think we could, we could bring into this as well, the farming organisations seem to be, in Ireland, seem to be quite opposed Mercosur because of the um, you know the the possibility of I think it's is it ninety nine thousand tons of tariff free beef being brought in. And yes, that's right. So I just wanted to ask you, like, you know, if would this spell the end for the Stutter farmers in Ireland? Because you know you hear that often. You hear that. You know, you heard Brexit was going to spell the end or every, you know, a fodder crisis or oftentimes if there's a, a new environmental regulation, apparently that will spell the end. So sometimes it can be hard, especially, you know, listening to maybe farm lobby organisations, it can be hard to to figure out what's 
you know, truly a threat and what isn't. Um, so just like your thoughts on the EU Mercosur deal. Yeah, you know, I can see where you're coming from there. When you talk about threats, you don't know how to answer some of some threats. To answer your question, uh, would it spell the end if, if we do huge, unmerciful damage to that amount of beef coming to the EU? But by the time that happens, and I believe it will happen, we have, you know, before we even get there, we have huge problems, I feel, facing us right now because the reality is that Brexit has not, has not kicked in at all yet here as against the beef sector. You know, Britain would have quite a substantial amount of beef in cold storage in the rundown or the run into Brexit in case of a hard Brexit, etc. And they have an enormous amount of free deal, trade deals being done right across the world. A lot of these trade deals are, are some of them are finalised, some of them are not. But the spin-off from them has not, you know, started yet. The importation of beef from um, Australia, uh, in, and the Mediterranean block that they've now signed up to, possibility of beef corn from America, that hasn't taken effect at all yet. And when that starts to take effect on the 52% of Irish beef going into, going into uh, Britain, that is the first sign and that will be our first problem. That's coupled with Mercosur coming down the line. And of course, as you mentioned, CETA, but I think it's 46,000 tons. That all them things together coming into the EU and, and especially coming into Britain. That is the big one for for us here in Ireland. If it comes down to a situation where we have to contend with Mercosur and we have to get markets for 52% of what we, we produce, well then this, it'll, it'll be a collapse situation. There's no doubt about it. Because, you know, 52% of our beef is a huge amount of beef and you cannot just flick a switch, you know, and get markets for that, you know, the following day. The Mercosur thing, you know, it was a bad deal the first day, but climate change again has a lot to do with that because of um, parts for cares and parts for electric, electric cares and all that type of stuff. And it's, it's more or less, there's a lot of stuff involved in Mercosur deal, much more than beef, but they're not inclined to deal unless the beef is on the table in the deal. But it would be, to me, it would, it's hugely worrying. But what worries me more at this stage is what happens when. Britain starts filling the market from all these trade deals they have all done, and then the Mercosur deal to come after that. And I, I would be seriously worried about Irish beef. You know, I would. But we should be like we're not developing. I don't farmers won't listen. If you try, you know, what I feel we should be doing right now is we should be setting up producer groups that we produce naturally. Doesn't have to be fully organic, but we produce naturally rare beef. And we should be growing our own grain to feed, yeah, feed as well, even though the climate is difficult enough to grow grain and harvest it. Uh, and we should be, um, we should, we, you know, we should be talking to butcher shops. We should be talking to the likes of Aldi, the likes of Little and Tesco, whoever would be prepared to stock, you know, this beef on their shelves. We see it there during the pandemic, you know, the huge amount of trade that was done in in local shops, in butcher shops because people couldn't travel out to the five kilometer zone. Uh, and it made a massive, massive uh, difference to to the the business of these of these shops and all that type of thing. And that is where, you know, I feel it as well, you know, that there's little or nothing you don't save, you know, the beef industry in Ireland really. Because that's the first thing we should be doing. Produce beef. The second thing that should be 
definitely pushed and definitely promoted. And it reminded me of one day I was at a wedding in Inniscrone. Beef was on the menu and a few was, you know, preferred for beef. But the beef we got, you wouldn't know what it was like. Yeah, you just couldn't eat it. Every restaurant, every hotel, and, and cafe, and all these places should be selling Irish beef to the consumers. There should be no such thing as you being thrown up beef from wherever when you in Irish hotels. They, that should be promoted that locally grown food must be served in these places. And there would be a huge market there for the likes of the West of Ireland, for the small farmer. And what we are doing today is, all we are doing is, you know, we're producing all this beef for feedlots so that the, bay, so that the, the, the factories can make millions, the supermarket chains can make millions, uh, or be it, can be flying around the world promoting all of this, uh, you know, and all this type of thing. And all we're doing is supporting corporate farming, and we're doing nothing for the family farm. And this, 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 I feel that we'll have to be, we will have to look at that, we'll have to try and develop that if we're going to counteract pregnant and Marcosa. Yeah. So, and so from what you're saying, there is currently no sort of uh, sustainable emergency plan for when the Brexit bite kicks in, nor in Mercosur one. Correct and right. There is, there is no, there's nothing put on the table as to how we're going to counteract this when it does hit, because it has not hit yet. People think that Brexit is over. Brexit hasn't started. That's the reason, in my view. It reminds me of an, uh, a headline I saw, uh, and I believe it was the Farming Independent, um, yes. but I'm not quite sure I'll find it, but it was a headline there before the Brexit exit date, it was last year sometime, maybe even the year before, and it said, um, the headline was basically, uh, Brexit is a huge opportunity for dairy farmers as uh, beef farms come up for sale. And I couldn't get over how gleeful the headline was. It was really rubbing everyone's nose in it. I thought, you know, they weren't even hiding, but, you know, the, the excitement of new land coming up for sale when the beef industry collapsed. Oh, absolutely horrific stuff. And you're 100% correct and right. I, I've seen headlines similar to that myself. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, that's right at the moment because dairy farmers who are stuck for land are willing to give London, they're willing to give 300 hectares to spread lorry on land. That produces so much lorry. It's, it's just incredible. Well, actually, that's another uh, another point we didn't touch on then. You know, aside from emissions, fines and problems, there's a huge issue with water pollution and soil degradation in heavy industrialised dairy areas. I saw a map there from the Irish Water, uh, the, you know, swan. Yes. Yeah. And they had, um, it just showed the degraded water courses from so much slurry because there's nowhere, there's nowhere to put it. And yet again, I noticed in the program of the government, there was a derogation. Um, there was no commitment to stop seeking derogation for nitrogen spreading. No, and, and, and you're right. And, and it's another massive, massive problem, especially in the simply found areas. I see that map too, actually. You know, down the yeah. south where they're supposed to be bringing in tighter regulation now in these highly intensive farmed areas. Well, uh, you know, it's just it's just horrific to think that, you know, it's so much slurry and it's running into rivers and it's having a huge effect on water quality, huge effect on people's health. Uh, and that is the big thing that we have in this country today because of what we're doing, it's having a huge impact on health. Um, and if you look at it like there's always more and more new 
diseases and more ailments and more new stuff continuously coming down on on stream because of you know chemicals no matter where you look and you know and there's huge problems with water when you look back and go back to where we were at when in virtually in every house in the countryside had its own well and it was carefully maintained throughout the year make sure nothing went into it and fenced off and all of that type of thing uh, and it was top quality clear spring water where, where there was nothing in today where all these systems that we have we call the system the water system that chlorine and all of that type of stuff the food that we buy off the shelves is all pre-packaged and if you look at how the pig was killed and cured by salt one back years ago today it's a few shots of injection and uh, you know to cure the meat another chemical highly cancerous you, you look at the cattle in the things you look at the bacon in the things with all this important grain again chemically treated and now we have a massive problem coming down the line which will kill 10 million people a year which is microbial resistance because we've been eating so much roundup in our food because when roundup was uh, founded or, or, or established and the main ingredient is lysophate and lysophate is actually an antibiotic and this is now having a huge impact on people's health we have a huge problem at the moment where people are not reacting to antibiotics and where we're going here we're probably between 50 years from from a to z we've gone full circle and we get good quality flu to you know to in bother if you like to put it that way right across the board environmental climate health you know you name it we're in trouble in every area you look at and Jerry, that's just uh, reminded me there of something that I'd like to hear your opinion on. Do you know the recent Antashka case against Glambia and how Glambia now have essentially put milk quotas on their suppliers in the southeast? And it's stemming from a case that's coming from Antashka saying that Glambia, well, do you know the new the new plant that they were supposed to be against yeah, on board for? Yeah. yeah, so they're coming at it from, a, I suppose, an environmental litigation point of view, right? And it's kind of, it is bringing up those points there that you're raising about the sustainability of farming, how the power is in Glambia's hands and how young dairy farmers are after taking out all this money now to increase their hard and they can't even now get rid of their milk they can't even sell the milk that they're producing and i'm wondering is that an indication of things to come down the line with more climate case against bigger corporations and if so i'm wondering in your opinion how can we keep everyone happy or what needs to happen to keep the rural economy afloat and maintained and the irish farmer and the environmentalists on the other side? Well, first of all, as regards the plant um, you're talking about, that plant was refused in Holland because of the amount of um, pollution that was going to come off the plant itself, as well as the amount of emissions that was going to come off. This huge amount of value of meat that's going to be, has to be produced to run it. And as you notice, it's a cheese. It's a cheese plant more than milk. The amount of milk required to run will be substantially less than if it was milk formula or baby powder or whatever you are producing. Now, it goes back again quite simply to the political end of things, where we have 
Fianfall and Fine Gael consistently supported corporatisation of all sectors. Uh, it supports the bigger player. You see it, we see it ourselves with banks, we see it with vulture funds, we see it right across the spectrum. And they have the power, you know, they, and they have the power, you know, to call this out and say, look, it's time to shall stop, like we're on the wrong, wrong road here. And, you know, that's fantastic. Yeah, I would totally agree with what they've done in objection to that. That objection wasn't successful. And, and, and now, at, unless there's an appeal lodged in, in the Supreme Court or appeal to, to, to Strasbourg or to the European Court or something, it's going to go ahead. Now, this reminds me of what's going on here with, I work for um, a financial institution and insurance company. And when they invest money or when they look to invest money, they don't look at 10, 20 or 30 years. They look 50 or 100 years ahead. And my view of the daily sector and the daily corporations, they look at they're the same thing. They know themselves very clearly that what's going on is unsustainable. They know that farmers are going to go to the wall and that they're not going to, be to make their repayments as it's going to be land takeover. And they want that land, in my view. They want that land to grow plant-based milk and to develop the hemp industry. Because the hemp industry, you know, for medicinal uh, cannabis and all that type of stuff, that's something we haven't even bothered about either. So my view of all of this is that the long-term view is that X amount of land is not going, the repayments are not going to be able to be made on it. It's going to be sold. The real corporation are going to buy it and other big investors to promote what's the next step, which will be what I've just said. Uh, I think this is a plan. Uh, I think it's, it's a long-term plan. Uh, and farmers are walking to all of this stuff with the rights being closed. They don't have, farmers don't have representation. The bigger farmers organization, organizations that we have in this country today represent corporate farming. They represent the corporations. They represent the business. Why have we, some of them sitting on Copenhagen in the European Union, which represent the bigger player, the lobbyists, all that type of thing, the bigger business. And farmers do not have any representation that no one is telling me they do. They don't. And there's nobody. It's like the climate change issue that has been on for 25 years. Where was the information there? It's like the designated land on hills. What farmer organization sat down with these farms and said, look, this is designated as special areas of conservation. It's special land. You must comply with the stocking rates and you must try and do the best you can. What did they do? They took no either, nothing. And they overgrazed the mountains. And now the whole thing is... In a bad in a bad place because simply the farmer organisation are not have not represented the farmers for thirty years in this country, never have, and the farmers were allowed to tag along as they see fit. The same as has happened now with Charles advising farmers for borrowing more money. When you have fifty cows there and they're not paying and, and you're getting a tight with your bills, you'll be told, "Look, you need to produce more. You need to up the herd. That that's more bottles." It's uh, you see in a growth model. If you're going to stay in a growth model, you must keep increasing. There's no other way to stay. I'll just get out of the game, one or the other. And that's the snap here. That's the snap that's that. Um, I just wanted to get back a bit to Mercosur for a second. And just thinking about how so Ireland and Europe and has been for years now, basically since the dairy quota was lifted, they've been dumping huge amounts of uh, milk powder into West Africa, and a lot of the dairy corporations that are headquartered here in Ireland um, have set up these rehydration plants 
in a load of different countries. And so like milk powder is created in Europe, shipped over and then rehydrated. I can't even imagine what it, you know, what that process is. But, you know, there's been a lot of kickback against it because they're completely decimating local dairy production, which was on a much smaller, much more sustainable scale. And, you know, it, it could be, it could be the difference between a family's, you know, having income that year or not. And so what I was thinking, you know, especially listening to farm organizations in Ireland um, say, well, we can't have, we, you know, we can't have markets or we can't let this beef into Europe. You know, do you think it's even, like, it's certainly not reasonable, but do you think it's even, um, is it even believable for, you know, on one hand for farm organizations across Ireland and Europe to push for uh, expanding milk and dumping milk into other countries while on the same, on the other hand saying, oh, well, you can't have beef in here. Like surely the whole system has to begin to crack soon because you can't have it everywhere. Oh, I, t- I totally agree. I, I do see, I, I do see us on the road of a collapse in agriculture right across, uh, right across the beef and the beach because look at it, it's, 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 it, it, you said they always, is it unbelievable or believable or whatever? Look, it, nothing surprises me with what's going on. Absolutely nothing that they would continuously, you know, promote this way of exporting this big powder, wiping out farm families in these countries, completely going away from the natural way of feeding a baby and telling these, you know, these populations this absolute nonsense about this formula of producing and sort of breastfeeding and all this type of stuff, and um, all about using it's using women and babies to make money in my view uh, and it's a sick way of behaving to be quite honest about it and it, you know it will be thrown back at them it has to be thrown back at them that what, where, what they are doing and what they're promoting in the likes of West Africa that they're leaving the door wide open from the question being asked of them like well why are you screaming about Makosa why are you screaming about Brazilian beef coming in here, or the Makosa countries beef coming in here, when you're doing the very exact same to other countries, you know, uh, they'll leave them wide open, themselves wide open to that challenge and to that, and that's of course what happened too. But I think it's incredible. I think it's 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 outrageous, and it's from a political point of view, you know, it's just incredible to think that. That we're doing the likes of this stuff, um, and that we're just promoting, I suppose, out eighteen thousand farmers in the country, as mm-hmm. regards against all the other farm families that have to try and make a living. Yeah, it's because it's either we either we embrace as a country, either we embrace the fact that agricultural products and agriculture is a you know international global commodity. Or it's not, and I firmly believe you know it shouldn't be, um, because it's so much more important than you know making computer chips or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, it's like it's like uh, in Ireland we can't decide we want it both ways. So I suppose, I just have one more question, and thanks a million for your time. So I was just thinking like, so say even if this Mercosur uh, EU deal doesn't go ahead. You know, there's still Brexit to deal with, but even if it does go ahead, like what would you see as a viable future for well the soccer industry, but Irish agriculture in general? I know you touched a bit on it earlier, but just to kind of flesh out how you can imagine if you were to, if you were Minister of Agriculture now, what would you start doing? 
And Jerry, what advice would you give to young farmers or any kind of farmers that are trying to be sustainable? Yeah, well, if I was Minister for Agriculture, I would be, I'd say tomorrow morning that we need to firstly reduce the dairy herd to back to 2011 levels where we were meeting our emissions, at least back to that, and maybe even more. You know, it might even need to come down further down the line. I don't know. You'd have to look at it in different stages. And um, where we need to get to is we need to develop either agriculture as across the board industry, not promoting just one thing. We need, you know, to develop what I already touched on there was the chemical free food. We need to become food secure. We're only days, weeks away from a famine event. We're not to war or anything. We import everything into this country, as we, everything that we eat virtually. Horticulture. Uh, the hemp industry should be developed. It would replace the secret fruit plantations. That's all over the place. They do the very same job. And hundreds of other products come of hemp. Um, as well as that, we need to start growing our own grain. Um, and we need to go back to, you know, first of all, produce top quality food for the people of this country before we look at anything else. And whatever we start to look at it, whatever we can afford to to grow or whatever to manufacture, or whatever the case may be for exports, well, they, you know, that's fine. But the people in this country should be coming first. They should have self-guided food. They should have, you know, all sorts of opportunities if they want to grow their own or whatever the case may be. Uh, and when as I guess, young farmers... Young farmers are in a difficult stage at the minute to get into van and it's sustainable because it's going to, you know, it's going to involve borrowed money. I would be saying to them, look at the chemical-free food thing, look and try and promote and try and get the hemp industry off the ground. I would advise them to borrow one single cent to get into the area. No way. There's too much more, too much money something in that already. Um, and look, at there's a lot of things that can be done we should be also developing um, our pollinators, our bees. Eighty percent of the world's food comes from pollination. Nothing, not being taken seriously here either. Don't really care. Uh, all this type of stuff. It, it's 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 a thing that would, you know, a bit of, and it would take a lot with a bit of common sense approach and a few people around the table. Uh, you'd come up with that with a system of you know a certain amount of proposals there. Uh, that could make Ireland a world leader as regards how agriculture should be operating and be sustainable in a small country like ours that has, you know, the sheep sector as well. And um, when you think of it today that, you know, we have a load of hills in this country, we produce a load of hill sheep. And yes, the hill sector is not recognised. There is no hill sector policy. You've never seen the hill sector road written in front of you in the Farmers Journal or the Irish Independent or any paper. We're talking about climate change for years. We're now promoting the idea and we now know from scientific research the value of bogs and the value of peatland. Not recognised. Where will we see anything about the peatland sector? Where is the research that should be done by the so-called farmer advisors that was called Chavis? which is completely unfit for purpose. 
where is the wetland sector, which is massively, massively valuable for carbon sequestration. And these, all these things should form kind of a, the young person's mind. Carbon farming will become a massive player in the next common agricultural policy. There's two years of planning, and I've seen, got my hands on a document recently which outlines how nature value farmland, carbon farming, wetland farming, all that sort of thing is going to become more and more popular in the future because it's going to be much less about food production, more about plant-based diets and all of that type of stuff, uh, and more environmentally friendly. But you see, what I'm talking about here is happening in a lot of other countries. The only problem we have is not happening in Ireland because of uh, political ideas, because of, of the ideas of farm organizations, because the ideas of corporations. And until we can break this business-led industrialized model of Irish agriculture, which I believe must be taken head-on by the taxpayers and by the general population, if we're going to achieve that, we're in trouble to come around to our way or my way of thinking on the proposal, what I would be proposing. Like it, look, at, I mentioned it before, we see all sorts of examples every day. You know, the organic, the amount of land that's been, the amount of people that's allowed into the organic scheme this year, absolutely horrendous. And then to find out that they cannot even join the new pilot scheme, the REAP scheme, for the next uh, environmental scheme, this, this, uh, this pilot project, our young firm is not allowed in. You know, so like, it's 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 going to take work. You know, we're fighting the the high and mighty the corporations, the organizations, all that. It's going to take a lot of effort. But one, one advice I would give, certainly one advice I would give to any young farmer: do not attempt to borrow one pound for you know to get into meeting cows because that is not a good investment at this stage. Jerry, I'm just wondering there. Finally, I suppose. Like who can young who can farmers listen to for the best advice? Because if policymakers don't have their backs or their best interests at heart, or and if you're looking to protect your livelihood, and clearly the model of increasing your dairy herd isn't neither environmentally sustainable nor financially, and they're been told that by Chagas, who I would think they would rely heavy on for um, advice. Yes. Like who can farmers or who should farmers be listening to? Well, I know that in this organization that I have um, recently sort of formed and the COVID has kept us back a lot, the the Ireland's Future organization, which I'm contemplating changing the name to the Rural, Rural Ireland organization, I know that is the type of stuff that we will be promoting. There's nobody else at it. Uh, you know, the, uh, there's, a, there's another organization there, uh, Talabio, now, I've just looked at some of the stuff they've up in the website and things like that, and they would be more or less down the same lines of what we're talking about over discussion here. But it's going to come. It has to come from, you know, from somebody has to take this on you, and somebody has to be fit to stand up and say it, you know, for what it is, where we're at and where we're going. And, you know, if I had a young person saying that it was taking her, she or she would take my voice from Travis, I'd be telling them, you know, like, what's all that? Because, it's like what Chagas has done and its advice to Irish farmers has destroyed Irish agriculture and has brought us to where we're at today. You know, this uh, advice about, 
you know, all this this uh, expansion stuff. And, you know, there's nothing, there's no advice there from Travis nowadays. I remember when I joined the first last game back in, the first last game, sorry, back in 95, 96. The service we got from Travis and the older advisors at the time was incredible, trust, top, top notch. And they would advise you to a T and that everything would be 100%. But today it's different, like, so, you know, somebody has to take on that. You know, tell the young people the truth and tell them the facts later. Well, I think there's no further questions. Thanks, Amelia, Jerry. It's been a very informative. If you have anything to add yourself, I, you know, I feel that universities, probably schools, should be doing more. I do believe that the younger people in our primary schools, that there should be an agricultural education program for them but if you try to do that it'll be Chavez or somebody else that's going to run it and it'll be more of the same you know so it's it's a sticky one but you know so it's been very important to start with our young you know and all this stuff yeah yeah well that was um that was brilliant anyway Jerry we won't keep you any longer Emma, do you have any last questions? No, Jerry, but thank, thanks a million. You had some really interesting points there. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. No problem, Emma. No problem, Charles. All right, Jerry. Sure, I'll be talking to you at some stage soon. Thanks a million. No problem, Patricia. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.